Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Hey, Sean Stewart, great to be in conversation with you. What is this, guys? The 13th of Friday. What the heck's up with Friday the 13th? Does anyone know why this is an inauspicious <laughs> day for us to be having the roundtable? No, we had 20 centimeters of snow on my driveway this morning, so it's already inauspicious <laughs> for me anyways. Seriously. That's why my toddler woke up at 5.45 this morning. I didn't put two and two together until just now. Ah, good, good, good. Okay, guys, we want to kick off today's show with discussion about the CBC. Stuart Thompson wrote a piece for us this week at The Hub that just exploded, um, basically questioning um, what the Conservative Party policy under Pierre Polyev will be with regarding to defunding the CBC. It's been a, a feature, Stuart, as you write about uh, his campaign rallies in his successful effort to become leader. It was really, um, as you report, possibly one of the pledges that stimulated the most kind of crowd passion and response, those chants of defund the CBC. So let me pass the mic over to you, Stuart, and just unpack this for us. How important do you think this issue is for the Conservatives now? And I guess how big do you think the existential crisis is possibly for the CBC? Yeah, it is a really great question because not only is there the question of the policy, there's the question of, you know, will he or won't we uh, actually do it? And, you know, this conversation has been kind of um, the parameters have been set by Aaron O'Toole's uh, platform, which, you know, he ran for leadership and was exactly like Pierre Polyev. He was releasing videos with the same rhetoric saying he would defund it. Nobody quite took it seriously, though. And then inevitably, um, he did actually take an off-ramp from that and he turned it into a mandate review. Um, so that uh, angered a lot of people. And I think it sort of set the tone here where instead of actually talking about the policy, we're talking about, can you actually do this? And I think I want to just leave that alone right now because it is interesting. We, he may drop the idea entirely. He may not, but we don't know. Um, and talking about the policy, I think is probably smart because you get distracted by the other conversations. So um on that side, though, there's so many ways to do this and there's so many different options that, you know, you could find a way to change the CBC that makes people who love the CBC happy. Because one thing I've noticed in my Twitter mentions is even the people who love the CBC have all these ideas of what it's doing wrong and what it could do better. And then, of course, there is sort of the conservative idea of this thing is obviously biased against us. The news is biased against us. Why do we even have this? Why are taxpayers funding this? That would be a full defund model, which is sell it off. You yeah. know, the Canadian Wheat Board no longer, uh, it was just sold off. It's no longer owned by the government. And you could imagine a version of that. I think the Polyev team think it's probably necessary to keep Radio Canada, no matter how drastic they go with the rest of CBC. So um, even the drastic solution would keep remnants of it around. Yeah. And then in between all that, there's all these other options of, you know, you could ban them from advertising or you could yeah. defund parts of it that are not part of the mandate. Um, there's so much to do here and so many different options for Polyev. Can I just say, uh, Rudyard, uh, uh, 
this article by Stuart is one of the reasons I'm so proud of what we're doing at the hub. Um, you know, that is to say we've had uh, Pierre Polyev talking about defund the CBC for what, six months or something like that. And essentially no press gallery journalist asked the basic question, what does that mean? Uh, how would that manifest itself in policy? And as, as Stuart says, there's a kind of spectrum from uh, reducing the, the public appropriation all the way to essentially uh, unwinding the organization through statute. And, you know, I think what Stewart has done is hopefully started a kind of conversation um, about the, the range of options. And, and, and not only will that inform the public discussion, one can't help but think it may even prompt the conservatives to start to put a, a bit more substance around, uh, around their own promise. Well, let's talk about the radical option, because I think that's the one that intrigued uh, all of us during his leadership campaign is what got the crowds fired up. So, guys, what is that? What does that look like? And let's talk about the politics of it, because what really shocked me in your story, Stuart, was a factoid, a, a Main Street poll you reported that something like 30 odd percent of Canadians are in support of defunding the CBC. Like, to me, that is a if you're a CBC executive, that's a five alarm fire. I don't know. Like, is there, is there Stuart the basis for a full on scorched earth policy towards the CBC in the context of the next election? Or is that exactly what the liberals hope for and exactly what they want the conservatives to put in the front window? Yeah, I, I think that's so interesting because that poll did not get into specifics. So it, it was kind of one of those Rorschach test polls where the people answering the question are imagining some version of the policy that may not actually be true or may not come to pass. So um, I I don't think I'd feel comfortable being in either party right now making any firm judgments on this because, you know, the polling is tough to figure out. Um, the the, I think the interesting part of this, this is something that Aaron Woodrick told me, MLI scholar, um, that I don't think made it into the piece, but it's that you have very strong support and very strong opposition. It's one of those polls where the strong support uh, outnumbers the somewhat support. And on both sides of the question, that's the case. So it's very polarizing and very high energy. So you can imagine a situation where Pierre Polyev comes in, he makes some fairly drastic cut to the CBC you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars or cuts their funding in half. And then the next election, the liberals go, we're going to restore all that funding. And then some, we're going to be the saviors of the CBC. So if you are Pierre Polyev and you are thinking in terms of your legacy, and this is something you genuinely want to do. And from everything I've heard about people around uh, Polyev, it is, he really does believe this. Um, one thing you might think about is that if you don't kill it, it'll come back. And this is one of those things when you start to think about policy where, you know, Stephen Harper cut the GST because you can't come back and raise the GST. No politician in his right mind is going to do that. So if you're Polyev, really the only thing you can do to make this policy stick is totally defund English TV or English CBC um, because anything else can just come back if you keep it around. May I just say two things in response to the points that have just been raised? Stuart mentioned the the Harper government's legacy on this issue. I would just note uh, in an episode of Hub Dialogues uh, last year with former Canadian Heritage Minister James Moore, he said, uh, I have it here, quote, 
I think it was a mistake for us back in 2011 at the start of majority government to avoid a conversation about the CBC and not prepared to have some kind of conversation about modernizing the CBC. I think there is a sense within conservative circles um, that notwithstanding the good feelings about the Harper government's legacy, this is a, a kind of black mark. And, you know, it, it's not surprised to me that it has the kind of resonance that uh, within conservative circles and conservative politics that Stuart mentioned. Just the second thing I'd say quickly is, uh, you know, my sense, guys, is that Pierre Pauly and the team around him subscribe to uh, a kind of understanding of politics, that the goal isn't to avoid political risks or political battles. It's to it's to, in effect, choose the ones you want to have. And and for that reason, I wonder, in part because of the polling that you mentioned, Rudyard, in part because we know it galvanizes his voters, um, that this may be uh, a political contest or political uh, contrast that actually they do want to put in the window and have a fight over in the lead up to the next election, as opposed to some of the other issues uh, that, th that they might feel more vulnerable on, like health care, um, like indigenous issues, like climate, whatever. This may be a fight um, that they think that they can ultimately win, that it galvanizes core conservative voters. And then for most other Canadians, with the exception of really hardcore CBC supporters, they're, you know, they, they're, they're mostly indifferent. They're, and that's, that's, in effect, demonstrated in their consumer habits. Uh, you know, we've moved on, people are watching Netflix and so on. Uh, and so I, I, that's a very long way of saying, I, I wonder if we might see something approximating the scorched earth policy out of Polya, both as a matter of policy and as a matter of politics. Yeah, what I would be doing if I was in the Polyev camp is I'd be pulling those suburbs around uh, lower mainland, British Columbia, the GTA, looking at what their media consumption and habits are and looking at their views on defunding the CBC. Because if, if I'm a CBC executive, that's what worries me is the politics of this. Because yes, downtown Vancouver, Ottawa, Toronto, probably Calgary, lots of CBC voters, but all concentrated in ridings that are already liberal and that the conservatives really don't have any plan or desire to, to fight you know, a Pyrrhic victory around. So I could see, a, you know, a shock here, a surprise to, you know, the Laurentian elites who would say, whoa, he's never going to do this because, you know, the CBC is such a national institution. It's you know, up there with healthcare and peacekeeping and, you know, beaver tails. And, and I think there might be a surprise here, a shock here where the CBC has just gutted itself over the last uh, decade or more in terms of two features that really annoy me, the in just relentless commercialization of the CBC. So it's indistinguishable from its, uh, from, you know, private media. And it's just so fundamentally annoying that they get to use a public subsidy to compete against media entities that are risking capital, shareholder capital, owner capital to try to create, in many cases, a public good news. Right. But the CBC gets to use this massive public subsidy to go directly up against them in, let's say, the sale of online ads. It's just yeah. it's insanity. And then the second thing the CBC has done, and let's be honest about this, I don't think there's any debate here. They have increasingly become like a lot of media in the West politicized. They've they they are in a lane and it's not explicit and they would disavow it if we had any of their execs on this podcast, I'm sure. But you just get a sense tuning in, to, you know, even the much loved 
CBC radio. It's just an incessant stream of, you know, center uh, left, you know, babble. Uh, sometimes it's like the onion here in Toronto when I turn on my local CBC station. I just, I can't believe they're having, I don't know, a conversation about, you know, uh, just the most conspicuous, uh, you know, left-wing um, virtue signaling. It's, I don't know. I, Stuart, I, I think this could be fertile. I think it could be a real surprise and a real shock. And there's part of me that just hopes they go for it. I would just love to see this fight. Yeah, I. that's one of the things that always came up in my conversations about this is, you know, I, so I do live in the suburbs and I talk to people and I, you know, you get in people's cars. It's not CBC that's on. It's like Hot 88.8 or something yeah, like CFRA. that. CFRA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it is funny because the tone is just so different from those stations, the AM stations or like the, you know, the music stations. And um, it is a fairly narrow audience. And I would, you know, one of the things I quoted in my piece was Catherine Tate, who's in charge of the CBC, making her big defense. She directly quoted Pierre Polyev on defund the CBC and said, you guys have no idea what you're going to lose. You're going to lose. Um, Francophone broadcasting in English communities, uh, nightly news and PEI, and you know stuff up north, and so that is stuff that's you know hues pretty closely to the mandate. But that's you know maybe two hundred million dollars worth of stuff, <laughs> if I'm being generous there. And I worry about that argument for the CBC because um, it kind of implies that they can't defend the rest of it because you know CTV can do that just as easily. And I would just say um, that. I would put this issue of the future of the CBC in a broader set of questions about um, Canadian cultural policy, including um, Bill C-11, which is currently making its way through Parliament. Uh, listeners will know um, that the goal of the legislation is to effectively bring online streaming services, think Netflix, Apple, YouTube, etc., within the CanCon regime. And my sense, guys, is that there's uh, a disconnect between how official Ottawa thinks of these issues and the uh, consumption habits of ordinary Canadians, particularly younger Canadians. Uh, you know, people are, as I mentioned earlier, voting with their uh, eyeballs. And I, I just think that that there is a, a tendency within Ottawa to overstate the kind of cultural attachment um, that most people have to uh, uh CanCon and the CBC and these other pillars of our of a kind of era of cultural nationalism that really just doesn't resonate with a lot of younger Canadians in an era of you know uh, ubiquitous media, a increasingly diverse population. Um, you know, it, it just feels like this conversation between the CBC and C11 is stuck in an era that just doesn't exist anymore. And for that reason, I, I think Polyev and his team uh, would be wise to, in effect, um, show that 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 there is this misunderstanding of, of how Canadians actually feel about, about this set of issues. My final two comments, on one serious, one frivolous, is that they also need to think of an alternative, right? It's, I, I would advise, you know, it's not simply about defunding the CBC. It's it's having another way to support uh, media 
uh, in Canada, because the I think there is a legitimate public concern of like news deserts, right? And that's part of what, frankly, the hub we're trying to solve here. So I, I would think maybe the the more free market solution is some kind of voucher or some kind of tax treatment that allows people to, you know, um, let's say donate. Uh, they're what they normally would be a subscription and receive it, an input tax credit from the government on the basis that you've subscribed uh, to a media group. How do you define that group? All those things look, it's problematic, but I, I, I think it has to be a one, two policy, cut the CBC, but then, you know, reinforce media and news gathering from the bottom up that really gives power to consumers to, you know, sort out the winners and losers here, here. Uh, based on what they actually like, not what some bureaucrat or some dictate in Ottawa says that they should like. The, the realist idea of Log thought this is the easiest way to solve the whole CBC thing is just announced one morning that CBC production is moving from Ottawa and Toronto to Winnipeg. The home of Can West, Izzy Asper center of the country the geographic you know uh lodestar uh for canadian nationhood trust me you would lose all the political correctness you'd have a whole new group of people that would assemble around the corporation in winnipeg uh and you'd have a fresh start um partly joking partly serious i think this is a problem of geography there's too much of the cbc yeah. in toronto especially and it just has such a Toronto geographic, political, cultural bias that just seeps through the entire uh, corporation. That's well, nine tenths of the problem. Let me endorse your proposal. It's a good segue into our conversation after the break as well about uh, residential investment, etc. Because it seems to me if you did that and you sold off the, the Toronto and Vancouver here, here. CBC offices, we'd probably solve the federal deficit uh, amongst other things. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on board. Okay, let's do it. Hopefully uh, people are <laughs> listening because, hey, this podcast super, super influential. Um, we wish. Anyway, back after this break, we're going to talk housing, some new developments out there. A little bit scary. Is there a crisis in the mix here? Are the regulators starting to more than just clutch pearls here? Is there something truly toxic brewing at the heart of Canada's housing bubble? We've got that for you right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was... Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Well, guys, interesting week um, in housing. Uh, late in the week, OSFI, uh, which is the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, um, boring acronym, important organization. It basically regulates our banks, came out and I think surprised uh, the real estate sector and you know the big five banks with 
an announcement that they were starting consultations this year to enact new rules and regulations that would limit the possibly was their major idea what and who the banks can loan to in terms of hot, what are considered high risk borrowers or borrowers that are taking on mortgages that are more than four times uh, the value of their income. Sean, I want to come to you on this first. It all seems bizarrely countercyclical. It's like, why didn't we have these types of limitations to try to rein in risky borrowing when home prices were increasing by double digits each year? Now we're on the opposite side of this historic set of rate hikes, prices falling, and now we're adding more uh, tightening through these types of uh, actions on the part of OSFI, I assume, Sean, to address concerns about growing systemic risk within the banking sector and its exposure to real estate. Yeah. Uh, another example of policymakers fighting the last war, right? Um, and, and I, I, you know, I wouldn't underestimate, guys, how significant this could be, especially as people come up for mortgage renewals, they're already going to be facing um, significant increase in their carrying costs because if they were locked in under a five-year fixed mortgage and now they're renewing at a higher interest rate, if they're also going to be subjected to um, new stress tests um, introduced by OSFI, I mean, you could have a pretty considerable share of pre-existing homeowners to say nothing of aspiring homeowners facing a kind of double pressure on both sides, um, both with respect to interest rates and with respect to um, bank scrutiny. That's a kind of ticking time bomb uh, in our politics. If, you know, in 2023, 2024, 2025, you suddenly have all of these people who can't afford to live in their homes. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think you're right to flag this issue, Rudyard is a pretty major one uh, kind of underpinning our, our political economy um, over the next, say, 36 months. Stuart, you are a new homeowner, having taken on uh, the purchase of a beautiful new home outside of Ottawa in the last uh, month or so. Um, what's your sense going through that experience when you were trying to kind of think through variable versus fixed? Where is this market at? What is my kind of tolerance here for both risk uh, in terms of acquiring a major asset, but also um, how do you kind of internalize these rate hikes going up? And then I guess the news this week that we could see in a sense more tightening, not via rate hikes, but via in a sense, the regulation of the banking sector out of concern that, I mean, there's an amazing stat in the Bloomberg reporting on this, that 40 40% of all mortgages originated during the pandemic were in excess of 4.5 times income to loan value, which is well above the 3.5 times that OSFI considers you know, a high-risk loan, a high-risk uh, borrower. So I don't know, Stuart, I, I get a sense here that OSFI was really wrapping the knuckles of the bank saying, look, you guys aren't aren't really acting in good faith here. You're you're just trying to originate as many loans as you possibly can with little sense of the consequences uh, of the of those decisions. May, may I just may I just interject? Yeah. I'm I'm terribly sorry because uh, I want to hear Stewart's um, uh, response. But I would just add to your characterization of what we've seen. One of the reasons the banks have have not been um, more conservative, of course, 
is that they a, a lot of those um, new mortgages that um, over the period that you just outlined are <laughs> have CMHC insurance mm-hmm. um, because they're less than 20% down. So in effect, you have on one hand government policy effectively incentivizing the banks to give out those mortgages, in effect, de-risking um, the potential consequences of defaults. On the other hand, Austri saying, what are you doing? Why are you being so uh, uh, unconservative in terms of your, your scrutiny of these borrows? Some borrowers, something is going to have to give if the government is, is saying you know two separate things to, to, to the financial institution. Right. Sorry. No, no, Stuart, Stuart is the antithesis of a default risk. I've let his... Banker, no, in case they're listening to the podcast today. <laughs> yeah, I we had kind of a Forrest Gump situation with ours, which is that my one neat trick for not being a default risk was buying a house before the pandemic started, a year and a half before the pandemic started. We were pretty conservative about that, like we played it pretty safe. And then we realized all those kind of fictional gains through the pandemic that you know we didn't we didn't uh, feel entitled to, but it was just nuts watching the houses around us go for you know crazy numbers and then we managed to use that to buy our second house. So that's, uh, if I was a Gen Z person listening to me talk about that experience, I would be (laughs) pounding the desk right now. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable reaction to this because, you know, even uh, we're talking four years since we bought our first house. And now I can't even imagine getting into the market now. And that's, you know, with two incomes and, you know, we're deep into our careers and um, the way that the houses have gone up is just crazy. Um, so I think that is maybe we were, we were just talking about a couple of days ago, the, the something like 15 percentage points uh, um, increase in uh, support for peer polyab among young people um, over the liberals. That's crazy. That's, that's one of those things that you just don't expect to see when I was growing up, when I was 20, you know, conservatives were the party of the old people. And, you know, then Justin Trudeau came along and enticed all the young people to vote for him in 2015. And this is a sea change. And I can only imagine, I, I have enough uh, through my own experience and then empathetically towards people who are younger than me about what they must be dealing with now. Um, this, that would radicalize you um, because you have this idea of what your life should be like. And it's just through so many different forces, many of which are completely out of your control and some of which are sort of moderately in your control, but not always. Um, that's a tough place to grow up in. Um, and now we'll, we're seeing, I'll just tell you from my experience buying a house, one of my real estate agent's friends, who's also a real estate agent, had nine rental properties, uh, all of which were um, cash flow negative at the time that rates were starting to go up. Just imagine how many other stories like that there are out there. Let's uh, bring a radical onto the program right now. Amal Adar Guzman, our producer, is in her 20s. Um, Amal, I'd love to know what you and your your kind of peers think about what's going on with housing. Like, What is the extent to which you and your friends have a feeling that you can realistically become a homeowner? Is that just like uh, an idea that's met with utter derision? Uh, is there frustration? Do you have anger as a cohort in terms of what you've seen about this, this run-up? And let's remember that like over the last 25 years, housing in Canada is up over 550%. That is almost three times the appreciation of the value of housing through much of Europe, certainly three times the value of appreciation of housing in the United States. Um, you know, something 
has happened here in Canada, where we've gone from a country that's usually very prudential and risk adverse to, I don't know, Amal, just engaging in this wild speculative frenzy around real estate. And I really feel for you and your generation in terms of how this impacts you. Yeah, I guess in just in general, I think it depends like who we were talking to, like which it depends from individual to individual. Some people are able to get a house, like some people my age, some people are a bit older, but of course that comes with great sacrifice. Just recently I was out with some friends and one of my friends, friend with her partner, finally got a house, but that came with great saving. Those that gave came with like great prudence on their end. However, that's not the case with everyone. It also depends where you get a house. So they got a house recently in the Ottawa region, which is really good. But not everyone wants to live in Ottawa. A lot of people want to live in their communities here in Toronto. And just recently, about a couple months ago, there was a Globe and Mail article saying that people who live in Toronto, people who live in Vancouver, people who live in major cities will have to leave to own a house. And while for me, that doesn't really matter because I'm open to like move anywhere in my life. I'm kind of like an open book in that end for me personally for some people they don't want to leave their communities they want to stay within their communities they want to raise their kids in the toronto the gta they want to raise their kids in mississauga they want to raise their kids in toronto in the future and they want to stay here because that's here in toronto specifically it's where their network are that can be easily be safe to young professionals who are also in vancouver why should we have to move because we can't afford it we and the, and the thing is it's not like saying it's not like saying we're not making money, but let's be really honest. Like a lot of yeah, we're here, talking here. about young professionals. We're talking about here, young here. professionals who are making yeah. 60K, sometimes one folks who makes 100K and they still cannot afford a house and even rent. Sometimes people are like struggling on rent. Some people cannot even afford their own apartment. They have to have roommates. Like we're not talking about, we're not talking about like, we're not making money. Like we are making money. It's just like, wait, there's like, I think there's also a problem between like wages and the fact that we can afford like wages are have been stagnant in recent years and sometimes they have been steadily growing but not to the point where we can actually afford our own places so i think in my cohort i think there is a bit of that frustration there is a bit of that anger and quite frankly hopelessness the the atar guzman rant that's gonna go viral uh here on hub dialogues uh or the hub roundtable rather well done Amal. the only other thing i wanted to put on the table before we wrap up is I've observed, I suspect you guys have as well, that something has changed in light of the government's increase, uh, announced increase to its immigration intake targets. For the first time, you're starting to see some pushback and not just in kind of fringe circles, but spilling out into mainstream discussion. You know, the Globe and Mail editorial page, for instance, for the first time in years, actually raising questions about our capacity to integrate uh, large numbers. And, you know, if you are pro-immigration as I am, that is a risky business. You know, it seems to me the government is putting at risk um, something pretty extraordinary about Canada. We've been able to achieve relatively high levels of immigration, relatively high levels of support, rather, for relatively high levels of immigration. And um, and it, it seems to me what I've observed in the past several months is growing concern that, um, you know, as much progress as we may be able to make on the supply side of housing, and there's a lot of effort and discussion about that, including at the pages of the hub, that we actually do need to have a conversation about the demand side, including uh, immigration. And, and and hopefully the hub can be a, a place for kind of empirical, dispassionate uh, analysis and debate about that. Because I, 
at the end of the day, we want to be able to create hope for a person like Amal in her court. At the same time, we want to protect this kind of special uh, um, uh, arrangement that we've been able to achieve in Canada when it comes to, to immigration. If I, if I may jump in on that as well. So I recently wrote an article about like last year, like towards November about the 500,000 targets. And one of the main issues we're talking about also is rental costs. So how, so it's not that, so in terms of housing, it's not that immigration causes housing issues. It's more about like whether people in general can afford a house, but also can afford rent. So one of the biggest issues specifically in Toronto is broad rental legislation there's no specific targets about like when should rent when rent rises there's no specific target where it should be capped so when you're bringing more people in with due to broad rental legislation there's gonna be much more pressure on the rental market and it's not like it's not immigrants fault it's no one's fault it's just the fact that there's a lack of proper legislation and the thing is recently in the article also when it talks when we talk about the new immigration targets yes majority are economic migrants or economic immigrants and yes, we are assuming that they are professionals, they are educated as well, but they're also going to face that pressure when they come here. Let's be honest, we're not ready to accommodate people. It's unfortunate. We're not even ready to accommodate people who are actually here now. Like there's a lot of people who come to Canada with hope, come to Canada to make a better life for themselves. And they're facing a lot of struggles, if not more so than the average Canadian, because being an, an immigrant in a new place, in a new country, has its own set of challenges. And now adding the pressures that they can't even afford a place to live. How is that fair? Yeah. But also, how is that fair to like, how is it fair to anyone? So it's kind of like a lose-lose situation at this point. Yeah, good points, everybody. And I mean, just to wrap this up, I there was a great uh, stat that we had in a piece by Robert Aslan this week that over the last five years, 40% of all fixed capital investment in Canada went to real estate. Now, just think about that for a second. Because this is what Amal and Sean and Stuart are getting at. All of us are getting at. We have had an absolute mania about this asset class. And we've seen it as an unalloyed good, those of us at least who are homeowners. And I think we've really discounted the stories of people like Amal and the hardships, not just on ownership, but as she rightly mentions, on rent. And we've allocated so much of our productive capital to this one thing, to the detriment of all those other things, like investing in more efficient factories that produce, you know, goods and widgets that we can sell to each other and around the world or investing in technology and, you know, the jobs associated 40%, it's double almost any other OECD country in terms of the allocation of capital to real estate. And we wonder, you know, we constantly scratch our heads. Why is our productivity so low? Why does Ontario have a per, app, per capita income equivalent to West Virginia people? You know, maybe, 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 maybe it's just because we've had this utter obsession with real estate and we have used our capital in really inefficient ways to invest in an asset that let's remember you can't export. It's not very innovative. You're using building technologies and you know techniques that have been around for decades. It's pretty carbon intensive. You think of all the concrete that goes into it. And it's not very productive. It doesn't generate the wealth that we're going to need in our society to welcome 500,000 newcomers each year and provide them with the education, the public infrastructure, the health care that they rightly deserve along with us as fellow citizens. 
Real estate is a curse on Canada. And I hope if anything comes out of this crisis, we break that curse and we have a reset here and we move forward on a new basis and a new understanding. Sorry, that's my rant. I just think we, we've, you know, we've drunk the bathwater on real estate in Canada to our collective detriment. Okay, guys, let's wrap it up. Um, I always get one rant in a show. It's kind of the <laughs> privilege of being the so-called moderator. Uh, Stuart, uh, Sean, Amal, thanks for a great program. We'll do it all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.